And good Saturday morning. Welcome into another edition of More Outdoors. This week we've got Talking Guns coming up in an hour from now. Devin Burgess will be joining me in the studio and talking all things guns, gun product, gun issues. We take your calls and texts. The calls are at 504-260-6368. And the text message board's wide open for you at 870-870. This hour is known as Hunt Fish Talk. We have Wendy Billiot, the president of Louisiana Outdoor Writers Association, also goes by the alias of the Bayou Woman. We also have Keith Lusher, the host of the North Shore Fishing Report, joining us, and we have a roundtable discussion of outdoor issues. We're going to be talking, well, a little bit of politics. Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries under the direction of our next governor. We're also going to talk a little bit about red snapper and also chronic wasting disease in white-tailed deer. Wendy and Keith, good morning, guys. Good, good morning. morning. How are you enjoying this fall morning? Wendy, what is the signs of fall has arrived in Doularge? What do you look at and say, yep, fall's here? Uh, lack of humidity <laughs> and dropping temperatures. <laughs> but, the, but the biggest sign is that the trout are already inland, already like yeah. crazy. You should have yeah. seen the boat parade going by my house this morning. Unreal. Yep. The trout are on fire like I hadn't seen them in a while. I don't think they ever stopped catching, though. They've just relocated. I mean, just it's unreal on social media, the volumes of trout. Now, you know, the stock's down and they're overfished, but I'm telling you, that's not what I'm seeing right now. Yeah, that is one of the beautiful yep. signs. You know, on the North Shore, Keith, where you and I live, um, the wildflowers, you know, they, they, they come out, the daisies and the, the little purple ones and some of the stuff that comes out during the fall is, and, of course, the tallow trees, which we never used to have here, they almost are like going to up to the, the, the Smoky Mountains when you mm-hmm. go watch the, the leaves turn. Those I think they're the only ones down here that turn red. And, yeah, orange and red, and it kind of looks pretty. Some of them will get a, kind of a purplish color to it, and that's kind of the – signal that that fall has arrived for me but boy you can feel it in the air you know it's just a difference oh yeah and you know something i'm i meant i uh i realized this this year is these trees start changing before i mean we had temperatures that were similar to june and july nothing has changed with those temperatures earlier on you know in late september and early october and these trees were were starting to uh drop their leaves anyway they've had enough so (laughs) <laughs> That's a good sign. But I tell you what, Wendy hit it hit the nail on the head. The speckled trout bite is, is, is crazy. Um, it is really incredible to, to see how this lake has uh, recovered from the spillway opening. Uh, beautiful water. Made a trip to Mr. Green along the shoreline right here. Our typical trip between uh, Bayou Liberty and Bayou Lacombe and did really well. Caught 30-something speckled trout, uh, a few redfish. The, the eelgrass down there is just gorgeous. Uh, the bait in the water. It's it's just really really good to see how Isn't quickly that recovery that amazing. It it really is, and uh, and the speed of it that I noticed because I you know, um, you know right I have to come up with articles every week and it's like I mean how how am I going to get through this? There's no saltwater fishing to report of, so my eyes are peeled on that scene and to see those reports coming back even two weeks it seemed like after that spillway was was closed. It just really makes you feel good as far as next time it's open, you know, how quickly everything's going to come back. But really great trip with Mr. Green. Uh, I had a good time out there. Anybody wants to check out the video, it's on the front page of com. Very good. 
You know, uh, I also got, I saw, I finally saw a boat fishing the causeway this week. And I'm starting to, you know, you got to really dig in. I don't know how North Shore fishing reporters are, but there's a lot of tight-lipped people about it. But I got a feeling yes. that they're picking up some trout out there. Yes. The, the causeway is one of the hardest places to get a report on just because it's, uh, you know, the crowds come out. Those, those people like to fish those bridges. Uh, also, those artificial reefs. Not, not too many people report on those artificial reefs because they're such a contained area. Uh, they don't like yeah. to see the crowds. But, um, yeah, we've been having some reports. I uh, haven't got a report yet, but we have got a complaint of, I see people fishing the causeway. Where's the report? So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, we tell the answer to that is, well, go get one. Go out there and catch them yeah. and tell us. You post it. Yeah. Get it yeah. firsthand. Well, look, we got Absolutely. some ground to cover here, and I want to get started on this. I know you guys have uh, listened to the, the listeners that, texted and called in over the last week and uh, gave su- suggestions about Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. It's an agency that has come under quite a bit of criticism these last four years, and uh, I think a lot of it is deserved, some of it not. And, you know, there's some problems with finding and funding for that agency that, that are, gives it some inherent problems, but I think there's also some that, that can be rectified. And, and, Keith, I'll start with you. What do you think uh, is some of the things that the message we should give to our next governor, whether it's a repeat of Governor Edwards or the new guy, the non-politician Eddie Rispone comes in? Where do you think that their opportunity really lies to, to better manage and protect our resources through that state agency, which they will be totally in charge of as far as making appointments, and uh, they don't do all of the policy determination. That's uh, done by the commission but the governor certainly has a huge influence on that agency. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we did a list earlier on uh, maybe a month ago about, you know, the importance and what questions lead the list. And, you know, mine was the private waters issues, of course. But um, I think, you know, rising up on that list is definitely the the secretary of of, of Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. I think that plays a a huge role. We've seen how bad things can get and – you know, I know it may be a pipe dream and it may not have. Well, let's just say it won't happen. Um, but if they could somehow orchestrate a change in the way the secretary is chosen, um, maybe have them voted in by sportsmen, the, the voters, uh, the citizens of Louisiana, boy, that would that would really be something. I, I think that that would solve a lot of problems with the, the appointed secretary being tied up politically to the governor. Um, I mean, you know, let's face it, the Amazon was awarded the, uh, the secretary. You know, people were just left shaking their heads like, man, I don't know what's going on. I, I know they're citizens of the state, you know, who don't really care about hunting and fishing, and you could slide that by them. But to, to sportsmen who really care about our, our resources here and the fish and the game and, and the land, um, you know, that left them kind of with a bitter taste in their mouth. Um and, you know, you've seen what happened with, with, with that, with Garrett Graves, you know, him going against Garrett Graves with the red snapper. It's like, why would anybody go against, you know, wanting the, the state to take that back? And there's numerous things that we can go through that went wrong. But I think I think it's really important to get a good uh, secretary of uh, Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries in there. Um, and that's rising up on my list. Um, you know, like I said, I, that won't happen as far as, being able to, to vote in our secretary, but uh, well, why you know, why do you think hope. it might not happen? We we have a, an elected uh, Louisiana Commissioner of Agriculture, 
You know, it would probably take a legislative change, but I think you're on the right track. That way you could separate the politics from an appointee well, because for helping a campaign if you were elected. Now, you'd have to open it up to the entire population because, as I've tried to stress, most people think Wildlife and Fisheries is a fisherman and hunter-only serving agency. It is not. If you eat the right. seafood, you breathe the water, you rely on the economics of the hunting and fishing industries through ripples uh, effect, it really affects everyone in this state. And disaster yeah. recovery. And yeah, we saw that with recovery. Katrina. Yeah, we saw that with, with Katrina. That's something I learned I did not know of. I saw, you know, Louisiana Department of Wildlife Fisheries out there rescuing people. I but, think we um, saw it again in August 2016 yeah. with the flooding. Yeah. I just don't see the, the governor giving up that power. I mean, I, I don't know how all that would be orchestrated, but to, to – the governor would have to give up power, you know, to to put the secretary well, in. Well, I'm not uh, going to say they're going to give it up uh, voluntarily. <laughs> it could that power could be with, <laughs> taken from them by a vote of the people. That might take a constitutional convention. I'm not sure what legislative action it would require that that become a, a elected position rather than appointed. But it can it yeah. can be done. It could be done. Wendy, what's your thoughts on that? Oh, several things. Yes, it it could be done, but, you know, everything moves slow in government. So, you know, how many – we're already behind times on this, changing the legislation to say how the Secretary of Wildlife and Fisheries would be chosen, appointed, or elected. Um, I'm kind of leaning toward the election side of things, too, but – um, I didn't get to listen to the programming last Saturday live, but I listened to the pod- podcast, and you know I was really impressed with the listeners' input. I mean, they they really do have some issues that they are concerned about, and the secretary of the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries was up there in the top four, and um, I think I took notes on about twenty six texts and phone calls, Don, I mean, you had an overwhelming response, which I think is great, but we've all known that hunters and fishers are, by and large, conservationists and very, very interested in the issues. A couple of the people who commented suggested that the next secretary not be political at all, but since we haven't elected a governor yet, and I really don't know how much of an outdoorsman John Bell Edwards is, I have to be honest about that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that I got one big color flyer in the mail for Eddie Rispone, and I think he might have even been wearing camouflage. I may be confusing that with someone else, but this is a sidebar. I received so many of those flyers from local candidates for other offices, and their main focus was their outdoorsmen and their pro-guns, and it seemed to be a, a big deal in this campaign. And so yeah. let's back up to the governor-elect, whoever that might be, and so if we start there and say, we really want a governor who is involved in outdoorsmen, is a true outdoorsman, and not just paying lip service to those of us, of us who hunt fish and make our living doing that, or it's really, really important to our culture and our heritage and our way of life, but someone who is genuinely involved and genu- genuinely cares. Now, if that person is elected, how can we impress upon that person that the Secretary of the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries should 
also be just as well invested in being an outdoorsman because I think it's crucial. So one of the callers said, we don't want another politician. So let's let's have a, a dual requirement. Not only be an outdoorsman and interested and involved, but Robert Parham is an example of a person who was a politician. As you mentioned, he was a legislator, and that came in really handy when he served as Secretary of Wildlife and Fisheries, and he did a very good job under some very high-pressure situations like Katrina and then the BP oil spill, and he did well, and he held his ground. So I'm not saying that a politician is, is not a good choice, but I think we need a combination of those things, and I think we need a balance. I don't care if the if the appointee is not a politician, but I do care if the appointee is a true outdoorsman. All right. Well, so I think everyone's in agreement that uh, Secretary, the leader of the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, is certainly a key in getting the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries in the right direction. We're going to take a break. We'll come back and uh, get some secondary comments from uh, Keith Lusher, Wendy Billiot, myself, about uh, what should our next governor do uh, with regard to the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. Where are the shortfalls? Where are the good things that they've done? There have been some great accomplishments, Lock Creel being one. I think they're doing a pretty good job on the chronic wasting disease control. But there are so many other areas that uh, things are just not up to par as compared when you look at other states. We'll be right back. You're listening to More Outdoors. Don Dubuque, Keith Lusher, and Wendy Billiot right after this. And this morning we're discussing uh, some of the concerns that were brought up by you, the listeners, through text and telephone calls on last week's program with regard to our Department of Wildlife and Fisheries and what direction our next governor should take that in. Uh, we, we talked about the secretary position, which is really important, and a lot of people commented on the private versus public issue, coastal restoration, and, yes, those are big responsibilities on the shoulder of the governor of Louisiana. However, that really isn't wildlife and fisheries baby. Yeah, they're kind of related in a related way uh, or involved in it, but it's not their main responsibility to set policy and also come up with a restoration plan. They are more as an adjunct agency that helps that out. But one of the things that was brought up and was that of uh, some of the blunders that the agency made. You know, they, they talked about this plans to put an airport on Elmer's Island. Where did that come from? The public went cringed when they heard that. Then there was this preliminary data on the speckled trout report that came out, which was quickly taken down and hidden and said, no, this wasn't supposed to be for the public. It was leaked. Then... Recently, we had this uh, was basically a campaign statement for Governor Edwards and the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. What have they done over the last four years? And it appeared on the Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries website for a matter of hours before it was finally taken down because I think someone thought this was a campaign violation by using a public agency resources to promote a campaign. Um, you know, some of those things that that really need to be talked about and addressed, that those things didn't sit well with our audience. No, they didn't. Yeah, Don, and, and I got that feedback. I listened to your show last uh, last week, and, and that definitely popped up um, as a concern. This agency has just rubbed people the wrong way just for, for things like that. Um, 
I mean, you know, not to harp on it, but going back to, to when when Garrett Graves came out, you know, he wanted to put forth the bill to take control of Red Snapper out of the Fed's hands and, and give it to the state. Uh, and, and why would you go against that? You know, uh, Malasso went against that. It's just, just things like that. It's like doesn't make much sense. And that's where I think people think too much politics is involved in this. But I like what Wendy said. You, you need some kind of person that has politics. Uh, politics in his blood because he, he he knows these people and you need to know people to get things done. So it's kind of a catch twenty two. It's kind of you, you know you want somebody who's not a politician, but they need to know what they're doing as far as as politics goes. You know another issue that uh, there was some uh, backlash on was when they tried to increase the licenses. You remember that that push that mm-hmm. we're going to you know drastically increase the, the the hunting and fishing licenses and the public soundly rejected that too and that brings up what i've thought i've always thought is a a a major it's actually wildlife and fisheries baby to to try to find funding for their own agency uh they just are underfunded the hunting and license uh fees don't keep up with the inflation and need for all the different you know aspects of what wildlife and fisheries manages and they refuse to try to get public you know general fund to tax money to fund the agency, and and because they don't think it's a fairness thing that someone who never goes hunting or fishing shouldn't be able shouldn't be responsible for funding the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, but that agency serves the entire population of the state in some fashion or form. Uh, what else did y'all think jumped out that that would, should get a, a governor's attention? There was a lot of talk about um, waterfowl. Um, issues and also mismanagement maybe and underutilization of our refuges and WMAs. And and I don't know how the governor would directly impact those things, but again, I would see the governor and the secretary having each other's ear and having each other's back on issues like this. They need to be very plugged in to these issues because if you're not listening to the outdoorsmen who are paying those licensing fees and who are buying all this equipment from which we do get tax dollars, then they're missing an opportunity. And and I think that's how all this has to work. And as you said, Don, it's all interrelated. But you mentioned something, Don, regarding the waterfowl, um, of forming a consensus, a group of interested parties to take a trip up the flyway and go to the source and get some answers. Would you mind reiterating that? I thought that was a brilliant idea. Well, what what it is, we've got a, the spawning of a new organization called the Flyway Federation, and their right. contention is, and they've got some compelling evidence, and there's video, there's statistics, that the trend is for the migration pattern, the natural migration pattern of waterfowl, is becoming altered, and it's due to some changes in agricultural practices up the flyway. They feel right. it's unfair. They're back. They're actually doing this on some national wildlife refuges as well as private property. And the two major conservation organizations for waterfowl, Ducks Unlimited and Delta Waterfowl, refuse to buy into that. Um, but the problem is their memberships believe that it is a reality and not a perception. So my suggestion was to organize some biologists from different states, 
uh, down the flyway, up the flyway, send some media people there to report on it, and send some representatives of these organizations and actually go firsthand and see the impact that it's having on the migration pattern and then give a report. And one way or the other can get an answer out and say, it has, uh, yes, it has a 50% effect, it has a 0% effect, or it has a 90% effect on altering the migration. And, you know, because the duck system situation in Louisiana right now is what I consider a crisis. I mean, it right. is that bad and that serious. There's economics being lost a tremendous amount besides the, the cultural and heritage aspect of, of waterfowl hunting in Louisiana. And I just don't feel like the state is doing its share to turn that around. And that was the, the solution that I suggested. But, you know, who knows? But, Will they listen but what to are the brass what are the brass tacks on approaching something like that? Is this something that you would have a sit down with the secretary over and the secretary would have the governor's ear on this and would it possibly become a governor's task force on whatever you want to call it, water, a waterfowl? I don't know. <laughs> I don't yeah, even know my, what you would my, call it. So it would be a migration change, a flyway or a migration change study, you know. And, and come but how would you approach that? What would be the steps? To getting that done well it would start with the governor giving the suggestion or the actual give them the go-ahead to the head of the wildlife and fisheries the secretary who would in turn walk to take it to his waterfowl study leader and then you know get them to come up with a scientific you know experiment if you will or, or a program a project that could be extended to other states and, you know, form a task force and, and, and get it done and find out, get to the root of the problem. But what's happening right now is people are just shunning these grassroots organizations. They're, they're, they're dropping their memberships, they're dropping their support because they feel like their back's been turned on them. And if you look at the, the trend for the last couple of decades here in Louisiana, duck hunting's on its way out. We are no longer the leader in waterfowl hunting and doesn't seem like we'll be returning to that anytime soon unless some steps are taken. And I think the governor should be alarmed at this and pass that that sense of urgency right on down to the secretary, to the waterfowl study leader. And my thinking is if you have a governor who doesn't give two hoots about waterfowl hunting, then you have to have the ear of the secretary, and that has to be someone who is plugged in and invested in those issues. Well, yeah. the thing about politics is I've always thought that you don't judge them by what they say and promise. You judge them by what they've done, their accomplishments. And Correct. so far, um, we get a lot of talk, but we get very little action. Keith, yeah. you got any so final like thoughts on well, other suggestions? Like be, well, I'm going back to the secretary. It sounds like there should be some kind of prerequisite uh, in order to uh, get the secretary you know, like a final, maybe three questions. you got to answer two out of three. You know, the first question is, uh, you know, what's the daily bag limit on a redfish? <laughs> have, you, have, you, have you ever owned a boat or, or, or a shotgun? And then maybe throw in a trick question, you know, like, what's the difference in a green trout and a largemouth bass? And all you got to do is get two. <laughs> well, you can't I, I'd like it to go. Sir, you know. 
I'd like it to go in a little more depth than that, but, you know, that's a start anyway. That would be a start. All right, we're going to take a break, and we come back, change topics. We're going to talk about this red snapper, which I consider the most highly regulated species in the history of mankind, the red snapper. Back to talk about that right after this. You listen to more outdoors, WWL 105.3 FM HD2. And welcome back to the show. Up next, we're going to touch upon something that uh, may be old news to you if you fish offshore. Uh, the 2019 red snapper season has been extended. Uh, as recent L.A. Creel landings estimated, uh, it indicates that a portion of Louisiana's 816-pound quota was still available for harvest So, uh, for the angler. So uh, the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries has opened up the red snapper season for another five weekends, and this started last weekend. Uh, the week of September, and it'll go through October 25th and 28th. So things seem to be headed in the right direction as far as red snapper off the Louisiana coast and into federal waters, and it looks like uh, the rest of the Gulf Coast states have extended their season as well. So my question to you guys is, what we're seeing, is is this a good sign? Are we back on track as far as red red snapper management? Uh, there's more fish to be taken to hit the eight they hit eight hundred sixteen thousand pound quota. So given everything that we've seen through the past couple of years as far as wrestling management of Red Snapper away from the Gulf Council, uh I'd like to get your take on what's going on as far as the whole picture. Do you think we've finally got this red snapper dilemma solved or or things, you know, can things get any worse or are things getting getting back to better? Is things um improving as as far as which which direction we're going down we can start with you uh you've seen this topic come across the headlines the past five years it seems um we've seen it at its worst are we back on track here yeah i think it's uh it's a wonderful job they've done that lock reel has been a big been a big benefit in helping get more opportunity to catch more red snapper i think uh the department you know, certainly they've been criticized, but for their reaction on this particular issue, I think it's been a good one. Uh, it needs to be managed on a, a very uh, concurrent basis because here's what happens. If we leave any unharvested portion of our 816,439-pound quota, uh, guess what happens to those fish? They don't get put into next year's quota for Louisiana. They go back into the entire Gulf quota which means we've got to give some of those fish up to Florida and Alabama and Mississippi and Texas and all the other states. So it is definitely to our local fishermen's advantage and to protect their interest in red snapper that we manage it on a a weekly basis and we go right up as close to that harvest quote as we can without going over. And after the uh, next weekend, this weekend is going to pretty much be a blowout. I doubt many snapper will be harvested because of the weather conditions, but it's going to be open again next weekend. And then after that, anything else that's left, they're going to give the remaining quota to the uh, to wounded, disabled veterans. And that can extend as far into December 31st or until we get exactly to that 
that very, very narrow margin of where we're just about fulfilled our quota. You don't want to go over because then you get penalized. But if you stay under it, whatever the underage is goes into the entire golf quarter. So I, I think they're doing a good job on it. I like what's happening. I still think we can certainly afford to take more. But that's going to take a few more years maybe of accumulating the harvest data to show that there's a lot more snapper in that golf than what the feds ever thought were out there. Wendy, your thoughts? Well, I'm not ex- I'm not answering your question directly because, you know, I'm not a big red snapper fisherman, never been. But I keep going back to all of the talk about how the red snapper really never was overfished. And I know that's how we ended up here. It's because the numbers weren't true. And I heard more than one offshore fisherman say that they that, – that red snapper were a nuisance, that they couldn't get down deeper to the other species they wanted to catch because the red snapper were always getting on their line. And so, you know, my head's still spinning about that is okay. And, and, and that's how we ended up here is because, like Don said, the federal numbers were not accurate. Um, but I was um, reading some stuff that um, that you told me to look at, and what really interested me, what is that? I finally found out more definite information about L.A. Creel, and I think that's the whole reason why our management is working so well. And so, Keith, if you don't mind, can I take a minute and just share this information that I found? Unless you were going to do that, no, I didn't. I didn't have all the background on L.A. Creel or the follow-up as to how it works. Um, wildlife and fisheries biologists surveyed. Um, well, this was started in 2014, right? Recreational anglers, uh, anglers supported legislation to fund it through an increased saltwater fishing license fee, okay? So the wildlife biologists, fisheries biologists, surveyed 30,330 anglers, and this is in 2015, and 1,794 charter trips, and they counted nearly 83,500 fish. And so their thought is that such extensive monitoring then gives them um, gives managers more confidence in this data, and provides excuse me provides a better foundation for sound, timely management of our recreational fisheries. So that made me wonder if they've got the same LA creel numbers for speckled trout, or has the main focus and thrust of LA creel been on the red snapper, and is there enough staff to do both with such focus? I think it's just a very interesting question because if it has worked so very well for red snapper, would it not in turn work so very well for speckled trout? Yeah, that's interesting. Don, um, you, you, do you have anything on this? Uh, red snapper is such a it's such a <laughs> a topic that you know if you're not into. You really don't know. It seems like we're struggling with even the numbers, as, as Wendy pointed out. Do you do you do you believe they were overfished? Uh, no, I don't think they were overfished. Uh, they were way back. Yeah, there was a time when I can remember going out there, and you couldn't you couldn't buy a red snapper. I mean, the, the ones that you caught were very small. They were definitely overfished, but they made a comeback, and I don't think that the the federal accounting system, the inventorying method, was accurate enough to to accurately record that comeback because, you know, we were seeing them, like Wendy said, you go out there, you can't catch anything else, 
And there was reasons for it. You know, they did not allow, number one, the biggest problem was they did not allow inventorying any fish that were found on structures, like oil platforms and rigs. Well, that's where the fish are. If you can't count the fish that are at a rig, guess what? You're not going to find very many in just open water. And they did not allow that because it was not natural habitat. And that was stupid because the fish are there, whether they're on natural or artificial habitat, they're there, and the numbers are there. You know, you can't just eliminate those numbers because you don't like the fact that it's artificial. You know, and I guess the, the thinking would be, the philosophy was, well, since it's artificial, we can't count on it being there forever, so therefore it doesn't exist. Well, you know, now we've got this rigs to reef program where mm-hmm. even those structures are being removed, we're replacing exactly. them, trying to keep it at a no-net loss of habitat. And the feds are just such a, a slow-moving wheels they just can't keep up with it, and this La Creole answers that. I think it's an excellent job, and we would have never seen the, the sport of red snapper fishing uh, blossom back to it's not where it used to be, but where it is now without that La Creole. We're lucky to have it. Keith, I have two more things. The other thing that they um, that they say um, helped with this effort is the um, phone calls and emails that they do um, polling um, red snapper fishermen. And the other thing they mention is electronic reporting. And I noticed that there is an app. And do you know if that's the only way that they do electronic reporting of snapper catches is on this app? And have you seen the app? I haven't even seen the app, Wendy, but that's a, that's a good uh, thing that to, to get more information from the, the anglers. Um, I tell you, one thing that caught my attention, have any of you heard of the Great Red Snapper Count that started in 2016? No. <laughs> I, I came across this. Uh, this is a project that was officially titled uh, Estimating the Absolute Abundance of Red Snapper in the United States and the Gulf of Mexico. And it's headed by Sea Grant. Uh, sea Grant awarded, was awarded some money, $10 million. And they put together a team of 21 uh, leading fisheries experts for the Gulf region to do a uh, things like habitat classification, um, direct visual counts, depletion surveys, and and high reward tagging studies. Uh, so <laughs> they're trying to come up with a, an absolute number of red snappers. So that goes along with you know with LA Creole trying to get a good uh, number on what's going on. But I came up with that they're supposed to come up with their their uh, study their findings in 2019 so i need to do a little more research on that and see what they come out with interesting <laughs> the, the uh, other well, thing uh, keith go ahead wendy i was just going to point out to our listeners um i think this is really important that you know we did have the increase in the, the license to fund la creel but i want to remind everybody that it will sunset on may 31st 2022 unless legislation is introduced and passed to extend the license fee increases. So if L.A. Creel is that important to us and it's been that beneficial in monitoring, uh, you know, real-time red snapper landings, then I, I, for one, would be, I would say, yes, keep my license price up there and apply these rigorous methods to speckle trout and put that mystery to bed once and for all. 
Yeah, really. I think that's LA another. Creel. It's a great aspect of L.A. Creel is that it had a sunset on those license fees built into it, too. And I think all license fees should be fashioned in that way. Right. Well, we get to see if yeah. it works. Right, exactly. Yeah, definitely, definitely need to keep L.A. Creel around. All right, we're coming up on the break here, but uh, when we return, we're going to talk a little CWD, chronic wasting disease. Uh, it's been slowly working its way across the country, and the states are taking precaution and putting in restrictions as to what you can and cannot do as far as the urine baits and transport and deer caucuses. And we're going to check in and see how those restrictions are working and what's next on as far as trying to keep keep this disease at bay in Louisiana. So we'll pick Keith, right you know, back uh, up after the Keith, you know, Wendy looks great in the uh, uh, lab coat, the white lab coat with the stethoscope oh, yeah. and the, the, the face mask and the hairnet. Yeah, she's going to take over this <laughs> when we come back. Dr. Wendy Billiot with Chronic Wasting Disease Report. Up next. Welcome back in to our final segment of Hunt Fish Talk this morning. I'm Wendy Billiot, and I'm here with Don Dubuque and Keith Lusher. And we're not going to be talking about chronic wasting disease in general, but I want to talk about something new that has come out. And we here at Hunt Fish Talk like to think that we are on the cutting edge of breaking news where wildlife and fisheries and the outdoors are concerned. And so it is my hope that this is news to you, but there is a new program. But let me lay a little groundwork. Chronic wasting disease. Now, if you're a deer hunter, you know all this, and if you're not, well, just listen because you're going to learn something this morning. It's a neurodegenerative disease found in most deer species, including our Louisiana native white-tailed deer. It's highly infectious, it's always fatal, and there's no treatment. And according to the Center for Disease Control, there is no evidence that CWD has infected humans. However, Caution should be used in handling venison in infected regions. Now, chronic wasting disease has been documented in 26 states, including our neighbors, Mississippi, Arkansas, and Texas. And our Department of Wildlife and Fisheries has been monitoring and testing for CWD for more than 15 years, and they have checked more than 9,000 deer during that period. And we can guess that all those results were negative. But on October 15th, just this past week, Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries released a new chronic wasting disease testing program for hunters with instructions as follows. And I want to go over these because, like I said, you know we want to be the breaking news on this. But Wildlife and Fisheries has coordinated with the Louisiana Animal Disease Diagnostic Lab at LSU School of Veterinary Medicine in Baton Rouge to provide an in-state mechanism for testing harvested deer for the presence of CWD. So if you're at your computer and you want to look at this and follow along or check on it later, it's pretty easy. It's their website, wlf.louisiana.gov slash hunting slash CWD. And so their first word of caution at the very top of the page is remember, Always wear protective gloves and eyewear when cleaning game and collecting samples. And one other thing I want to say before I move forward with this is that I think that if I hunted deer near the Mississippi border, I would take advantage of this program because 
keeping in mind the fact that there were maybe five or six deer that tested positive for CWD near our border last year during deer season, um, I think I would be taking advantage of this. But let me go on through this, and then I have a couple questions for you guys if we have time. I'll try to, I'll try to rush through it. First off, <laughs> please record the GPS location of where the deer was harvested. Okay, I have to stop right here. Don, how would you do that? <laughs> what do you mean? How would you do it? How would you record you, the GPS well, location? Use your, you can use your cell phone. You can? Now, yeah, unless you don't have any service, but, yeah, you can drop a pin, you know, where you are. At your and spot. it'll give you, or, or do you have to use Google Earth on your cell phone? Uh, you could probably use that, too, but the easiest thing is just Google Maps, you know. and drop. Okay, so step one pin. is put some kind of app on your phone that gives you the GPS coordinates because that's the first thing you have to have. I'm just saying. Well, you know, they, over that. They, 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 I would think that's what they would like in a perfect world. But, I mean, you can give them a, a, a very more generalized location, you know, with uh, exactly what parish, what county, you know, that type of thing, what piece of property well, you, you know are. How well, that would be we, helpful. You know how picky we are on our fish records. This says GPS location. But nah, moving on. Okay, to submit a deer head. So now we know it's the head for, for testing. Remove it five inches below the ear. They provide, online, they provide a brochure with the graphics to show you exactly what to do. And the heads may be caped with antlers and skull cap removed if you want to keep those. Capital letters, do not freeze. The samples should be refrigerated or saved on ice. So as we said, they've teamed up with LSU. And so you go online and you click on the little button that says, I want my deer tested for CWD, and then you provide all this requested information. And you will then receive an email, and of course you pay. You pay, you're going to pay $37.50. $5 goes to LDWF for sample collection, supplies, and shipment. $30 charged by LSU, and $250 is the online processing fee. So you're going to pay $37.50 for the testing. And, you know, to me, again, you know, I think it would be worth it. So you're going to receive an email with the CWD testing results form and um, and an email receipt for your payment. You have to bring both of those, and I'm assuming you must print them, bring these forms and your deer head to one of the um, sampling locations, which are the field offices in Hammond, Lafayette, Lake Charles, Minden, Monroe, Pineville, and Baton Rouge. Okay. After you drop off your sample, you will be given a sample ID number, which you will use to search the CWD results database to view the status and results. And there's also a link on their page to that. Now, I went to the, to the database to see if there was anything there yet, and there's not. And I think it's going to take about two weeks, I think. And, and, of course, that depends on how busy they get doing this testing. But in some parts of the state, if I'm not mistaken, both seasons, both seasons is already underway. So, you know, we potentially have some deer that have already been submitted for testing, and I'll be curious to see, especially in those areas close to the Mississippi line, um, and hoping we don't find any of that. But like I said, I'd definitely take advantage of it if I hunted over there in the east. So I want to, we just have a few minutes left. So, Don and Keith, do you think that by and large deer hunters will take it? 
advantage of this program? And Don, would you, because I know you're a deer hunter, would you take advantage of it? I would if I suspected for some reason that it had a possible chance of being contaminated with CWD. You know, if the deer was uh, sickly, emaciated, uh-huh. uh, and it was staggering around, you know, and just like in a, a state of uh, dizziness, and symptoms that, that would exhibit on a CWD, I, I definitely would. But just to, to take a regular deer killed and just for general purposes have it tested, no, I wouldn't do that. Would you be willing to wait the two to three weeks to get the results back before consuming that deer? Um, if I suspected it was CWD, I wouldn't consume it at all. Test results are no. I mean, I just, okay. Keith, what about the, you? Be on the safe side. I'm not that hungry. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the more testing, the better. Um, what gets measured gets improved, huh? I mean, they're doing such a great job right now. Um, I'm not one to critique them. We did a show uh, two or three years ago when they put the transport van into place, and uh, I thought they were just spinning their wheels. I thought this for sure would would get into Louisiana. So, uh, hey, whatever they think, you know, needs to do, I think it might be of more value to uh, LSU and uh, the department to get these tests back uh, more than valuable to to the the hunters. I don't know if, if hunters are going to do this just because of the $37 you got to pay to do this. Um, if it's it hasn't been proven that it can be infectious to humans, and we have no case of it in Louisiana, I don't see too many um, doing this. But I do see if something pops up in the state and it, the wheels start spinning as far as CWD in the state, I could see them definitely taking advantage of this. I personally would not. Okay. Don, do you see any benefits from a program like this as far as prevention goes, or is this more, just more of a peace of mind endeavor? Well, and you're paying thirty-seven fifty for peace of mind. Right. If it's a case of it being discovered, it won't be prevention. It'll be control mode at that point. But, you know, be advised that, that they do considerable amount of testing on deer at random. At some of the WMAs and the check stations, they actually do it at no cost to the hunters, uh, just to keep keep tabs on it in the state. Well, they've tested 9,000 so far. So, yes, right, they've been doing exactly. their job. And now we have a, a suggestion that we don't um, use uh, deer urine. And so I hear music in the background. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure <laughs> as always. Wonderful show. I know we jumped around a bit, but I enjoyed it, and I hope you did too. Everybody, it's beautiful. Get outdoors. Go fishing. Have a great weekend. See you next time. And I'm hanging around for I'm hanging around for talking guns. Devin Burgess is coming into the studio and we'll talk a little guns. See y'all next time. Uh, Keith, we'll see you at Gus's next weekend, my friend. See you next weekend. All right. We're back with more right after this CBS sports update. 